Welcome to the Silver Screenings, a podcast celebrating those movies and their 25th anniversary. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Brian Pyrus and Matt Peterson, as tonight we go to the stars and watch Galaxy Quest. Well, gentlemen, good to see you again as we come to yet another entry from the top tier year that was 1999. Tonight we're going to be going to a movie I think that's probably a little bit near and dear to each of us, maybe for different reasons, but uh, we all are uh, what we could, I think, accurately call Trekkies. And so we're talking about Galaxy Quest. Uh, This movie opened up on Christmas Day of 1999, and that was a stacked release weekend. Uh, So that weekend also featured Any Given Sunday, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Man on the Moon, and also had uh, other movies like Stuart Little and Toy Story 2 and The Green Mile that had just come out like a week prior uh, or a couple uh, weeks prior. So it was a a very loaded weekend there. Made on a budget of $45 million, it produced a total of $90 million on its box office run and opened up, sadly, very much far behind some of the other films. It opened up at number seven that weekend, but like I said, it was a stacked weekend uh, for the holiday rush there. Uh, Matt, since you picked this movie, I'm going to start with you because I have a very important question to ask. Oh, boy. Does this movie have the greatest use of ADR in cinema history? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah probably. Uh, it's Maybe for our audience, just for those who might not know, maybe just explain what is ADR and what is the scene we are talking about here. I think anybody who loves this movie knows it well, but uh, there's actually for two... somebody in the audience, they might not. Yeah, there are actually two moments in the film that are very obvious. So ADR is automated or automatic dialogue replacement. So someone comes in and re-records a line. Uh, there's an S word and an F word that are clearly removed. <laughs> the more, most famous being Sigourney Weaver's uh, moment there in front of the engine core or whatever, whatever you want to call it. The with, chompers. Yeah, with the, the chompers. The, uh, the crushing gauntlet they have, to, they have to pass through. So uh, clearly this movie was originally intended to be more for adult audiences and my understanding, too, is even the, the crash scene at the convention at the end, there was supposed to be quite a bit of gore in that scene with fans being decapitated and all, all sorts of crazy stuff uh, that that was ultimately... I don't even know if it was filmed, but uh, yeah, they, they definitely softened this. And I don't think the film suffers necessarily as a result, but it is very obvious. That is, I think, one of my favorite moments in the movie, though. The just how obvious the the, the dialogue, fuck that, yeah. is not uh, is changed to well, screw that. It's uh, very very obvious, and uh, all the more now that you can watch this in high definition and big screens at home. I don't know if I picked up on it quite as much on VHS back in the day, but uh, this definitely is uh, has a new life of its own because of that. Well, let, let um, me let me clear this up though because. What, was it originally the F word in the theater? No, no, it it was. I think they they wanted to make DreamWorks released it and wanted to get more of the family appeal audience and things, so they shifted some of it in the post down to a PG rating. Okay, because I, I was reading some accounts that the F word was actually in the original theatrical version, but I I, I couldn't confirm that. I don't know. It was released as a PG movie, yeah, so and we got that not. from the MPAA. So they definitely yeah. couldn't have had the F word in it, because um, that would have got it at least an automatic PG thirteen. Yeah, 
Yeah, that was still or, when you could get away. Well, I, I mean, I know it's still the case, but back then you could get away with one fuck, right? In a, I mean, not a fuck, but the word fuck. Uh, <laughs> as long or, as it wasn't respo- re- referring specifically to the action right itself right. yes 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 that's yeah. right. that was the rule uh-huh. at, at the time yeah well we're, we're we're getting way into the weeds just <laughs> just to start here but i it is interesting to note that there was quite a bit of revision even the way this film was presented between the theater uh and home video visually uh apparently there were some aspect ratio changes too that didn't make it to to home video so kind of an interesting presentation history with this picture just to start we probably should talk about more than just that well brian you also are a resident uh star trek fan here and have a a long history with the franchise how do you feel like this does as just a a nice solid representation of the world of star trek yeah i think pretty well i have to say i'm a little bit i don't know my my Trekkiness is in hibernation or something. I haven't had enough time to let it out, and I think it was also sort of um, destroyed well, new Trek doesn't by. Count. Well, yeah, I mean, it was also sort of destroyed. I, mean, I haven't watched a Next Generation episode, and I don't even know how long. I think I, I think I watched some a few years back as like a cleanse after um, watching the first season of Picard. But, and so I remember having a lot of affection for this movie, but I haven't seen it in a long time. But I think it does a great job. Um, what I like about it a lot is how. You know, it satirizes the whole world, the fandom, the actors, but it does so in, I think, a very loving way. It doesn't have contempt for any of the characters, for the fans. And I think that makes it a really enjoyable, fun movie. So I think it represents, I think, I guess I can't say how well it represents the world because I've never, I've never gone to a Star, Star Trek convention, you know, <laughs> uh, I've been more of a casual fan i suppose but you know we, we we all recognize those scenes from you know documentaries or whatever and uh yeah i think it does a great job it is a, a good point just of how this isn't a cynical or condescending film right it's, it's a very sincere and earnest i think movie that loves its subject it's having fun with it. it it's playing up on some of the events i think it's maybe worth just thinking back 25 years ago 1999 being a star trek fan was almost like a social curse uh, compared to today, right? You know, I, mean, I, I have experienced this on a very personal level, but continue. <laughs> well, we're going to get that story from you uh, before this podcast is over. Um, but I, I remember because at this, at this time, I wasn't, I was probably a casual Star Trek fan. I watched some episodes, I'd seen the movies, but I, I definitely hadn't been into the show as much as many other people were. But I, I would remember like one time accidentally like crashing into a Star Trek convention at a Barnes and Noble, <laughs> which I didn't know about. I kind of realized it, and I saw these guys with the the ears and the, the, the shirts, and I thought, oh, wow, they really do exist. This stuff really does happen. Um, because you know now Star Trek has become so much more slick, and it's so very different in terms of its production values. This film captures, I think, the essence of where it was and where it was understood to be culturally at the end of the 90s. But really with a great amount of humor, wit, and just enough entertainment value to really make it work as its own movie, even if you aren't a Star Trek fan. I think, especially if a kid had seen this, uh, they would have just liked it as its own movie if they had no reference of Star Trek itself. It, it works on its own. Um, 
I was actually thinking, Matt, you know, last year we did for one of our episodes uh, for 1998, Star Trek Insurrection. And watching this just again for our pod, it struck me that this is actually a much better Star Trek movie than than a lot of the TNG movies are. Uh, so um, yeah, I it's... thought that it was kind of a cool little just fact that this actually serves as a really good standalone film in its own right, but also as a really good sort of Star Trek film. Well, that's one of the things I just love. Well, one of the many things that I love about this film is just how well it treats kind of multiple levels uh, of, you know, related to Star Trek in general, whether it be, I mean, we talked about the uh, dynamic of just fandom in general. And I, I think that's the thing people tend to cite the most about this film, just how well it captures that. And and like Brian said, there's, there's an affectionate quality uh, towards the idea of fandom or towards fans in general, it's not belittling them or it's making fun of them to some degree, but it's not, um, not mean spirited by any means, but it also captures the idea of, of Star Trek as a television show and just how, how that show worked, uh, on many levels in terms of its relationship between characters, but also just the little cliches that we're used to seeing in Star Trek uh, whether it be the the red shirt character that gets killed off, or um, the big scene where the ship is revealed in space dock, and and the you know launching from space dock, transporters, you know the ship, even the little details like the ship separating, and these things that we're very familiar with uh, in Star Trek, and how it incorporates those aspects of the real show into this film, I think are really creative and if you are a star trek fan you're going to notice that stuff and appreciate it but on another level it just captures the idea of being a struggling actor right and here's a a group of people that had that little brief window of success and they're trying to emerge from that shadow and they're trying to uh, still make ends meet, and, and they're really stuck in this cycle of, well, we just have to continue doing this Galaxy Quest thing. Uh, and, of course, that reflects real life uh, for a lot of the Star Trek actors, too, unfortunately. And, it, you know, Star Trek has been filled with a lot of just fantastic character actors, fantastic performances, and, unfortunately, a lot of those actors just were never able to make it outside of the world of Star Trek. And and this film uh, captures that wonderfully. So it just operates on so many levels and really hits all those notes perfectly, I think. Uh, and again, just with this kind of overall feeling of appreciation and affection for the idea of not only Star Trek, but any any science fiction show that kind of falls into this bucket. You mentioned its cast, and it does have a pretty loaded cast. Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, uh, Tony Shalhoub in a, a pre-Monk role. Yeah. Uh, and then Sam, Sam Rockwell uh, as well, um, uh, really <laughs> bringing some good supporting bits there. I think, you know, the casting really is a big part of why this movie succeeds because we have familiarity with a lot of them, you know, but they also, a couple of them are were unknown qualities at the time. This is also a film that has a, 
a couple of before they were famous people in little supporting parts. Uh, Rain Wilson uh, shows up and evidently was playing Dwight Schrute before Dwight Schrute was even a character. Uh, so <laughs> the performance is exactly what he does in The Office. I don't know. Did did you pick up on that, Brian, as oh, you were yeah. watching it again? Yeah, it was very brief, but very apparent. He's a little so, more happy, a little more chipper in this one, but yeah, it was pretty close. <laughs> pretty much almost identical, yes, what what he was doing there. Uh, well, Brian, just focusing it here onto the cast a little bit, uh, what do you think it is about this particular ensemble that works so well? Uh, because I think we all agree that these actors are really kind of getting the parts right. Yeah, they really are. Well, they, you know, they, they have a very clear chemistry working together. I think the idea of Tim Allen as the Shatner type, the arrogant, cocky, you know, this is the guy who maybe has done a little bit better outside of this role than everyone else. And so he can show up late to the convention just as they're about to stroll out on stage. And there's this resentment between the rest of them. But also this, you know, sort of latent uh, connection between he and Sigourney Weaver. Um, but they, they have they have all that. But you can tell that maybe before that they had connected, maybe early on in the in the early goings of the show, and that connection that they have comes out later in the movie, as they get deeper and deeper into this mess that they found themselves in. And that chemistry between them all. I mean, the casting director did an incredible job on this film because they do all work so well together. Um, but that 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 bond really shows up more as the film goes on, and and it's uh, it's a, just a great job by all of them. And you have Alan Rickman too, who's the uh, the, the thespian, you know, the Shakespearean yeah. actor. Because <laughs> there have been a lot of just great Shakespearean actors in in Star Trek, yeah. you know, D- David Warner and of course Patrick Stewart and. So the the fact that they hit on that, well, uh, wait, that you mean, was you mean not William Shatner? He wasn't a Shakespeare actor. You know, he probably did at some point. Who knows? <laughs> to be or not to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did the uh, Julius Caesar rap in Free Enterprise, so you know, there is that. Well, taking a look just into the the movie itself, it was very well received by critics at the time. Uh, so it's got a, currently a ninety percent approval on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Roger Ebert very much liked it. Uh, David Mamet said that it is one of four perfect films, placing it alongside alongside The Godfather, A Place in the Sun, and Dodsworth. Um, I'm imagining nobody probably remembers A Place in the Sun or Dodsworth anymore. I do know both those movies. They are quite good. Uh, Of course you do, Nate. That is quite the... Quite the statement. Did David Mamet lose his mind back then? Because uh, I think we all thought he lost it in like the last 10 years, but maybe he lost it in the 90s because <laughs> that seems like wild praise. But uh, it did uh, get a lot of good attention, good notice. But I just seemed like this movie, was it because it was such a loaded deck at that time of year? It didn't seem like it caught on culturally, even though it made money, it got good reviews. It didn't seem to really break into the consciousness or am I, am I missing that? Well, I kind of feel like it was a few years too late, to be honest. I, I, if we're comparing this to Star Trek specifically, which which is clearly modeled after, so I think it's fair to put it, you know, under those constraints. Kind of the the peak of Star Trek fandom, or at least penetration, kind of into the public consciousness, was mid '90s, so like '94. 
you know, end of next generation, Star Trek Generations comes out, you have Deep Space Nine on, you have Voyager. That was really sort of peak uh, public awareness of Star Trek, I would say. And it, if it was timed a little more around that period, it probably would have done better. So, you know, as it stands in 1999, this is probably a little niche to begin with. Uh, but I think likely it was Barry, but it, it definitely has become more of a cult hit, right? And and there's a lot of attention, I think, given to it at this point. Well, that kind of segues neatly into our Q&A. So let's uh, jump, actually, we'll jump ahead to our second question, then, our, and we'll come back to the first. So our hindsight is 2020 question. Did the critics at audiences get this movie right when it came out? Brian, what are your thoughts? It seems like they did. And if anything, it, it does seem to have grown in stature since then. I don't think this is a great movie, but I think it's very enjoyable, very entertaining. Like I think uh, one of you said previously, it helps to have the knowledge of Star Trek and that whole world, but you don't need it. Um, my wife watched this with me, and she's by no means a Trekkie, and she really enjoyed it, thought it was a lot of fun. So all these beats I think are very recognizable but yeah I think I think that um I, I you know there's there's not a lot of bad that you can say about this movie it's not groundbreaking in any way but it's very enjoyable and fun and and done in a very um good-hearted way yeah I I think they're right on it I mean this is you could say this is pretty much a perfect screenplay you know so you agree uh, with Mamet? I, I don't think I have a hard time arguing with him. You know, it, it feels weird to say a movie like this is a perfect movie. But if you think about it, if you step back, it's doing exactly what it's set out to do uh, in a very creative and effective way. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I haven't watched this in several years and just revisiting it. It just breezes by, you know. It's mm-hmm. just all the story beats come at the right times and it still manages to deliver some really touching and dramatic moments too that always kind of catch me off guard. Uh, I, I think about that scene between um, Alan Rickman's character and the one of the Thermian crew members that he kind of pals around with, you know, and that clearly worships his character from the historical documents <laughs> <laughs> as as a hero. And his death scene, right? That scene... You know, he's he's quoting some throwaway line that he absolutely hates uh, from a TV show that he also despises, and when he says it in that moment, it's uh, it's super powerful. And and you know, Tim Allen's scene with the lead Thermian when he's being tortured and he's having to tell him that his character is not not real. That's another scene that just lands beautifully. So it just manages to deliver. A, you know, real dramatic impact in unexpected ways. And, and that goes beyond all the things I talked about before in, in terms of just how well it handles those different layers of, of Star Trek, whether it be the real TV show or the actors or the fandom. Yeah, I, I think they got it right. But I think that, you know, your point, Matt, that it's kind of a perfect screenplay. I mean, it's not a profound, it's not a deep screenplay, but it it's perfect for what it sets out to do in yeah. terms of how it sets things up, pays them off. It's very satisfying. There are arcs. Uh, it, it manages to create 
just enough believability so that you kind of can invest in it, but it never takes itself so seriously that then you kind of stop believing in it because it's trying to build up its world too well. Uh, you know, I think I think it does do a really nice job, and I we you know we haven't mentioned its director, I'm not a particularly famous name, but Dean Parasot, Pariso. I'm not sure exactly how the last name's pronounced uh, for him, uh, but you know he didn't make a lot of films, but he just seems to have the right beats uh, in terms of how to stage and set things up, how to incorporate special effects. All those things really come across nicely. Uh, where it really does work, uh, I think, overall as a film. And so, yeah, the the fans of this film, I think, have been uh, rewarded a generation later uh, because the film definitely does hold up uh, very nicely for, for all of them. So our marketing executive question, what's the best tagline for this movie? So uh, the obvious tagline is the one that was the kind of catchphrase from the show. They used it for the promotions. It's called Never, or it's Never Give Up, Never Surrender. Uh, but a couple other ones they came up with were a comedy of galactic proportions. These actors are now outer space heroes. And the show has been canceled, but the adventure has only begun. So did either of you come up with a better tagline or a good tagline for this movie? I'm going to say yes. Uh, everyone else is going to say no. No, I didn't. <laughs> All right. So actually, so normally, um, I've only been doing this podcast with you guys for a couple months, and I, for some reason, you know, started off thinking that you varied these questions up from month to month, and that I needed to, that maybe you would tell me what the questions were. So now this time I've asked you in advance. I've got them all written down, and I actually thought about this ahead of time. So now you're going to see how little good it does me to think about it ahead of time versus just trying to come up with something on the spot. So, you're, not, you're not supposed to say this right. out loud, but yeah. Well, I'm nothing if not honest. This is true. Okay, so the first one I got, Go beam hard. me up, hottie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Who are you referring to? I will say, so Gordy Weaver uh, was 50 years old when she made this movie, and she was looking very fine at 50. I did realize, though, that the guy working in the transporter beam was Tony Shalhoub, but I'm I'm still going to stick with that tagline. <laughs> And my other tagline was, they'll have to act like their lives depend on it. That is good. I like that. Yeah, that's not bad. Thank you. This is probably too obscure for people who haven't seen the film, but I I thought, uh, uh, by Grabthar's hammer, you shall be amused. Hey. That could work for as like a a midnight re-release. Yeah. Uh Yeah, revival. Yeah, so. I actually couldn't come up with anything better. I mean, the never give up, never surrender. It seems like a logical one if you're trying to promote this as a new property. So I, I get that. Uh, the, what I came up with was from the small screen to outer space. You know, that's the only thing I could come up with. So, all right. Well, our Stranger Things nostalgia question. What has changed from when we first saw this movie? Um, I realized this time that our villain's really quite boring. Hmm. You know, and that's not. I'm, I was trying to parse through. Do I think is that kind of its own in joke that actually a lot of the Star Trek villains are very generic and dull and boring, or is it just that they didn't come up with a good villain? I don't quite know <laughs> whether that was also meant to be a meta commentary or not. But he really is quite boring. Yeah, it's true. There's nothing interesting about that character. He's yeah. just a generic bad guy who wants to kill everybody. 
with lots of makeup, like a Star Trek villain would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this time around, I would say I noticed the practical effects a lot more. Uh, so Stan Winston was involved with a lot of the practical costumes and creatures, and they look great. You know, they really hold up pretty well. And th- there's a comedic angle to a lot of the designs, too. Uh, that that weird sort of monster on the um, on the desert planet, the with the giant mouth, you know, <laughs> just some, some of the designs are, are very goofy, but, uh, but still effective. And and there's CGI in this as well. And, uh, it's used pretty sparingly. There's some practical models. Uh, visual effects look great. ILM did them. Uh, so it really delivers on that, that level too. But yeah, the practical effects in particular really stood out to me this time around. Yeah. They're mostly pretty good. I haven't seen this in a long time. I don't remember when I last saw it, which, is kind of surprising because I really like it and I'm glad that we watched it for this. And by the way, the I don't know if it'll still be the case when uh, folks listen to this, but it was like $4 to rent on iTunes versus like $5 to buy. So that was a pretty easy purchase decision, which was nice. Yeah, it's a good deal. So I think when I saw this before, I was a lot more into Star Trek and more connected to all of that. So I think I appreciated that bit a little bit more. About, I mean, I still obviously appreciate that part a lot, but, you know, stepping back and, and just watching it a little more disconnected for the first time, just realizing what a great movie it is, even if you, you know, are not super into, into all that, which I think is a real triumph of the film in terms of how it obviously speaks so much to the folks who are in those communities, but that it's enjoyable. I mean, I, I'm not outside of it, but I, and I still obviously am very familiar with Star Trek, but I, like I said, watching it with my wife, who has no real interest, she's seen the J.J. Abrams movies or whatever, but uh, has seen maybe one or two episodes of The Next Generation, you know, and zero episodes, I think, of the original series, <laughs> um, who still just thought it was great fun. So that was really neat. Well, that kind of gives us the perfect answer to the next question. What The Walt Kowalski get off my lawn question, what would Gen Z think? If this movie were released today, it sounds like because your wife is Gen Z. Well, no, she's she's a millennial, but she's you know she, she's kind of she's close-ish to Gen Z. We'll we'll like inherit her in for the purposes of this question. Yeah, no the generation behind us. Yeah, she so. liked it a lot. She thought it seemed she thought it was lots of fun. Not that it held up really well. Didn't seem particularly dated in any way. Yeah, I think the only thing might be they might be a little thrown off with some of the special effects because the CGI is really obviously CGI. Yeah. That being said, a lot of CGI today is still really obviously CGI. Yeah, has has not improved much. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jurassic Park still is better than almost all the special effects happening all these years later. Mm. Um, but I think that's the only thing I was thinking of is that would the special effects just seem a little dated or quaint um, to people today? I don't think it'd be a big complaint, but that was yeah. the only thing I thought they might pick up on or, or wonder about. The one that rubbed me the most was the little, the little tiny aliens on that desert planet. Yeah, that was not great. And the rock Some monster. Jar Jar was... Binks going on right there. Yeah, right. They're pretty cartoonish. Yeah. And then the the rock monster mm-hmm. was clearly sort of a a simpler sort of collection of shapes that <laughs> wouldn't have been too. <laughs> Too difficult to create in the computer, but 
I, even that though has an interesting little in reference for, for Trek fans. I, I think the director cited the, uh, the Kirk Gorn fight as being the inspiration mm-hmm. for that. Definitely. But, uh, you know, really knowledgeable fans would know that the end of Star Trek V was intended to have uh, a rock monster very similar to that. So the, the director... Which, by the way, Shatner complained that they gave the go-ahead for this, but wouldn't give it the go-ahead for him in Star Trek V. <laughs> Did, Did okay. you know that? I, I didn't know that, I guess, but... <laughs> I have to think that at least somebody at ILM uh, was aware of that connection and and probably brought brought some of that uh, some of that into this film. So, what would you be? Is that what's your answer then, Matt, on what you think Gen Z would say about it? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I I think they would enjoy it. Uh, it. It does have a timeless quality to it. I think it holds up really, really well. It, the way it's shot and directed to it, it feels fresh and yeah, definitely not dated. So. Yeah, aside from some of the the tech limitations, I I, I don't think uh, I don't think it would fall flat. Our Kevin Feige franchise question: Does this movie deserve a belated sequel? Uh I'm okay with it being standalone. I, I know they've been floating the idea of a sequel for quite a while, and I, I think there's still discussions of a, a TV series of some kind. I don't know which streaming service is behind that, or if that's going to happen. I think since. Alan Rickman tragically passed away, uh, sort of put all those plans on the back burner, which probably is appropriate. You know, he's, he's such a pivotal part of this movie. And, and you could say he's sort of the Spock-type character. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to, to play into the, you know, death of Spock angle uh, that existed in the real films, I suppose you could and still honor, honor him in some way. But it it would definitely be lacking without him. So I want to pitch an idea because I agree with you that Alan Rickman's death made me think there's no way he could do it. But then I thought, what if you did incorporate his death into the storyline and you had a sort of a Star Trek three, the search for Spock kind of uh, thing where they could go see that they had some technology, they could bring them back. And with comedy, with humor, with grace, but it becomes sort of a story about learning how to let go of your friends uh, and to make peace with, you know, just the fact that things fade, things pass. Um, would that be an interesting way that you could take this story uh, and do a sequel by incorporating his death as a, his, the actual death of Alan Rickman into the actual story of the sequel? Maybe. Aside from the fact that Star Trek Three is like... It's horrible. I, lo- I love Star Trek Three. <laughs> what for nostalgia? Uh, but it's very poorly directed and very poorly written. And Spock probably never should have been resurrected. Aside from that, I think it's <laughs> and a fine this would idea. right the wrong of that because you wouldn't <laughs> resurrect him. You'd say they learned to be at peace and not bring him back. Okay, all right. That that sounds like a better idea then. I mean, it kind of sounds like a lovely tribute to. Alan Rickman. Yeah. And the character. It would be, it would be cool if, if they could pull it off uh, gracefully. My idea was a lot less nice than that, which was you um, I mentioned Picard already on tonight's podcast. And I, I can ju- see right now you're like, you're having like tremors uh, just with the idea of it. So I haven't watched the third season, which 
I think oh, you and Matt liked. So oh, you still haven't watched season I, three? Oh. I still haven't. I know it's meant to be good. It's just that I watched the first season and it was just so not yeah. good. You you need to watch season three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The other ones are the other ones are. T- or, yeah. I, I I couldn't even get through the first season of Picard. So. Uh, yeah, season three is is definitely worthwhile. It's not perfect, but it's 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 worth it. So my thought was you do a you you do something like that where um, Jason Tim Allen's character is off making his own show where he's playing what's his character's name? Tim Allen's <laughs> character. Yeah, it's like uh, Captain Tag- Peter Taggart something. Yeah, like that. yeah, yes. Peter Quincy Taggart. So he's off he's off doing a Taggart show with none of the other guys because he's you know. He's that great. He doesn't need him. And it's getting panned, and the fans don't like it. And then for, like, the second season of the show, they bring back the old the old buddies, and that's when they get sucked back into, you know, whatever real sci-fi uh, goings-on happened to be going on at the time. And then it's a big hit. All right, and lastly, our producer's choice... Who would you replace in the cast or crew? Okay, I have two ideas. So my first is, to me, in the film, like the least interesting character is um, is Tommy Weber, um, played by Daryl Mitchell. And I just, I, I mean, I think the part is sort of, it's just not given a lot of attention in the screenplay. But I was thinking maybe if you had maybe a, one of the Chris's, Chris Tucker or Chris Rock in that role, you have a little bit more kind of slapdash comedy aspect to it. I think mm-hmm. the film could actually use a little bit of that style of comedy just here and there, and it would add a little bit of fun and spice to the role. Um, my other thought was um, to continue our meme here on this podcast. Instead of um, the guy, I, what's his name? Enrico, uh, who plays Mathazar. Um cast uh, Marlon Brando as Mathazar. <laughs> Marlon Brando makes another comeback. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're going from Nicolas Cage to Marlon Brando <laughs> in every, every movie. I was almost thinking the same thing as you, Brian, about maybe Chris Rock or somebody like that for that part, because mm-hmm. I agree that that part's fairly forgettable, right? I mean, yeah. it just there's not a lot to do and not a lot happens. Um, but I wound up going for a deep cut. So I was thinking, because I said as I watched it again, that the villain's really quite boring. Mm-hmm. If you could beef up mm-hmm. the villain with maybe a little bit of a better actor in it, you could maybe redo the character design to allow the actor's features and acting to be a little bit more there. Mm-hmm. So I would propose Terry O'Quinn, and this would be cool because I can see Brian already gets it. Uh, and Matt, you get it too, right? In season seven of TNG, he plays Admiral Pressman, Pegasus. Right, who was in, who was involved with breaking the treaty, uh, the Treaty of Algeron, right? So, I thought that'd be kind of a real deep cut that he played a villainous character on the show, and Terry Quinn's just as a good character actor. So mm-hmm. I think he'd have had a lot of fun with it and could have done something really special with that part if they'd gotten him in it. Yeah, that would have been pretty interesting. That that's a deep cut. That's I respect that. I thought you were gonna go. Possibly also with like the Shakespearean actor in that role, but I guess you already had Rickman. So in the original series, you didn't have any Shakespearean actors in the in the cast, right? So they put them as the villains, or at least they had one of them. 
Um, but with Next Generation, you had the Shakespearean actor as the captain. I mean, had Christopher Plummer take the role, right. of course, in the movies, but I don't remember Shakespeare actors in, in any of the bit parts, too, oh, for the TOS. No, I just meant I meant in the movies. Yeah, Christopher Plummer. Yeah. But, Matt, I mean, I'm just thinking back on the three seasons of, of TOS. Do you remember any Shakespearean actors? I'm sure there's probably I mean, somebody. Not in the main cast, but, but certainly in, in guest roles and some villain roles. I mean, there was even a, a Shakespearean troupe that visited the Enterprise and Conscious of the King. Uh, well, my, my pick is kind of similar to yours, Nate. I, and this probably doesn't take into account uh, when it was made uh, terribly well, but I was thinking of replacing the, the villain role with someone that's a little more comparable to, like, Khan, mm-hmm. since Khan is just so recognizable. And I thought Benicio Del Toro, you know, would have been great in that role, and he was actually considered to play Khan in um, Star Trek Into Darkness. And that, that didn't end up working out. But maybe it would have been too young at the time. But this is... Kind of oh, right it would have be- been after Usual Suspects? Yeah, right maybe. before his big breakout in traffic yeah. in 2001. So probably not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, I, uh, I think he would have done a great job. Yeah, that would have been cool. All right. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure talking about Galaxy Quest uh, together. Hopefully, those who have not seen this movie will go check it out. Uh, and those who have seen it will have enjoyed uh, our ideas or thoughts of what we could do to even make it better. So for all of our listeners, thanks for being a part of our show. If you do like us, uh, please do follow us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd be so kind, we'd love it if you'd write a review, leave us a five-star review to help promote the show, uh, to advance our audience and get us to keep growing bigger and bigger. That'd be much appreciated. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Never give up, never surrender.